Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement podcast, brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out GoLawEnforcement.com. Gentry Giles is a patrolman with the Amarillo, Texas Police Department. He had only been on his own on patrol for five months when he was involved in a shooting. Patrolman Giles talks about that event, what got him into law enforcement, and advice for anybody interested in a law enforcement career. I am Gentry Giles. I'm a patrolman at the Amarillo Police Department. just a rank of officer, nothing special. I work a beat, and Amarillo is—it's in the Texas Panhandle, city of about two hundred fifty thousand, and we're the municipal law enforcement agency, pretty much the primary municipal law enforcement agency of the area. I've been with Amarillo Police Department for two and a half years now, almost to the month. Um, my main interest in law enforcement probably came from having a, a father who was both a Marine and a deputy sheriff as I grew up. And my dad became a deputy sheriff at the age of 19, so young that, in fact, his wife had to buy his sidearm for him. And so he he did that from a very young age. He was in the Marine Corps as a reservist, so he did that simultaneously. So from his young age, he was very servant-minded, very service-minded, and hard, tough, uh, very much about protecting and, and serving and being uh, the the man of his household. So I learned a lot from him, and I think through the nurture of my life and the culture I was raised in, being around deputies, being around officers, it was supernatural and easy for me to choose that as a career. I went to welding, actually, out of high school, was a welder for three years. I really enjoyed it, but being in that welding hood, I was really alone most of the time. I just I did my own thing, and that, that weld is nothing but yours. And I really was starving for interaction with people, and especially in dealing with their problems. I just interested in them. So the next logical solution, me being around my father so much, I thought, you know what, I can apply for our police department. And I was born and raised in Amarillo, so there was no question about which agency I wanted to go to. I knew if I would lived here, I'm going to serve here. And so I applied at APD. Uh, as soon as I thought I, I ought to be a police officer, I think the next day I made an application. So to me, it was relatively easy. I know myself pretty well. And I had, I've been one of those kids that had a thousand jobs. So I had made enough job applications that it was a little bit easier, but they do the typical um, pre-interview. What do you, why do you want to be here? Who are you? And then you do a bigger, long application that's you're basically, it's like a 30-page packet of everything about you. Everything from have you ever stolen a piece of gum to, you know, do you have any criminal history? And, and it's, you know, it's a tough packet, but it it's worth it. And then you go through, you know, physical board interviews. Yeah, several board interviews, an oral board with patrolmen, board with ranking officers, captain, sergeants, lieutenants, things like that. And 
then you go through the, the physical and it's, it's just multifaceted process. To me, it seemed logical. I understood why they were doing it because I had been exposed to law enforcement my whole life, but I had several peers that were going through that process that thought it was a little bit silly, but it's very much about, you know, you, you spend your whole life with yourself. So you pretty much know who you are, but they don't, they don't know who you are. They don't know what you're going to be like whenever something's annoying or hard to do or confusing. And so the whole process of that is to kind of see, first of all, the process itself is a test. Are you going to do it well and take it in stride? Or is this annoying to you? And it, the whole thing is to kind of see who you are and they're just getting familiar with you. So it was, it wasn't very hard for me. It is long. It, I think our process took about eight months. Uh, so it can get it testing whenever you're working at a fast food chain or you're doing serving drinks at a drive through. It's a little bit hard because you're like, come on, I need this job. Some people really do need the job and they're kind of relying on it. And then they need to know, am I going to pass? Am I going to fail? Because I've tested at five other agencies. So it's just for a lot of people in my peer group of it, it was really hard and really confusing. But for me personally, uh, I thought if I'm not going to serve at APD, I'm probably going to serve at Potter County, which is where my dad was at the time. Uh, So I I kind of was a lot more confident in it. So it, it it was a good experience, though, to say the least. The oral board with our our ranking officers, I think ours was two sergeants, two lieutenants, and the captain of patrol at the time. And those are the famous oral boards. I think most agencies do them where they ask you a question that's pretty provocative as far as a scenario, and it's almost a lose-lose. And then you have to answer it to the best of your ability. And they're they're hard questions they're very hard both moral dilemmas or just thinking on your feet and you're you're really choosing between the lesser of two evils and so this is stressful because you know that those oral boards often weed a lot of people out because people get stressed out in them even though they're just sitting in a desk but that probably was the most severe for me i think was the oral board with those people and and they're there are people you look up to. Those are ranking officers. You know they're there for a reason, and so you get a little bit nervous in the presence of these. And they're all uniformed. They're all dressed to the T. Uh, really put the pressure on you. That was probably the hardest for me. One of the scenarios they presented to me was you're at a gas station about to go in and get a water, and you hear uh, – you know, your partner's coming to pull up next to you and he's going to go into the convenience store with you and he's typing on his computer or something. So you go ahead and go in, you hear a gunshot outside after you've already walked in, you rush outside and you see that as your partner was getting out of his vehicle, he had been shot by somebody who ambushed him. And then you could, you saw the person turn the corner, run off. And your partner was kind of crawling towards the building, trying to get safe and get, get some cover what do you do? That's the scenario. They just set it up like that. They launch it to you and they, they just kind of leave it super open-ended. They, they stop really soon into the scenario. They don't give you a lot of information and, and that's how they, they phrase them for you. So I said that I would obviously get on the radio and let everyone know probably, you know, what's going on, suspect description, status of the officer and render aid to him and protect him uh, really focusing on the people in the gen- in the immediate area, telling people going in the store and and in the store already, if I could, really loudly, 
get it, tell them to get cover, give my officer cover, render him aid if he was shot in the leg or something, you know, we could do a tourniquet or just really make sure that he's not going to die. And they come back with, what about this man? Maybe he's going around the corner to kill other people. What about, you know, the, the other possible victims? Maybe you didn't get a good look at him of his clothing. Do you want a better description? What if this officer tells you, just go get him, you know, what? And they, they pressure you, they bring you multiple different angles. And the push is they're trying to say, well, yeah, maybe I'll go chase him. They want you to change your mind a little bit. And many officers would say, yeah, go get that man. If you're, if your fellow officer says, I'm fine, look, I can put a tourniquet on myself. I can cover myself. I'm awake. Go get him. And, and you want to do that. Then a lot of officers could justify that. The, the real goal that the board is trying to get from you in that position is that you're going to pick an answer and stick to it and, and say why you did what you did. So many officers would choose to go after the bad guy once they've once they've checked on their friend. Many officers will stay with him and lock down the area. And what the real goal is, is, is how, why are you thinking that way? Like, what are your priorities? And will you stick to your answer? Or are you going to flip-flop back and forth when we ask you, well, why didn't you go chase the bad guy? Are you going to be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, maybe I'll do that instead? So I, I chose to, at that point, for the next 60 seconds of that scenario, I'm going to stick with my man. I'm going to lock down that area and I'm going to maybe position ourselves in a better way. I'm going to get radio traffic out so that, so that people can uh, know what's going on, know the last direction of travel, who this person is. And I may try to position myself to see more of that corner. So we're not ambushed again, but you know, you could justify hunting that guy down just as well. And, and who knows who's to say in real life, I might actually go chase that guy down. Uh, but that at the time that was my answer that's what I said and and a lot of you'll forget you know if you're a first time interviewer and you've never or interviewee I guess and you've never been around law enforcement most people aren't going to say I'm going to get on the radio and let dispatch know you know because they never do that in their normal life that's not an answer that's ever going to happen to somebody that's never been in law enforcement radio traffic isn't something you have to think about so they they're not concerned as the interview board Oh, that guy didn't get on the radio. They know you're not a cop. You've never had a radio before. Why would you do that now? They're looking for how you think through things and, and can you admit you're wrong? Maybe they maybe they tell you, hey, this is a, that's a bad way to do it. You shouldn't do that. How do you accept that criticism? How do you accept being wrong? It took about, I think, an hour, hour, 15 minutes. It felt like six hours, but it's just every question is that dire. Somebody's about to die. Somebody's getting killed, and or somebody's doing something horribly wrong, and you know about it. It's it's always like that. But it's it's a very eye-opening experience for sure. You learn a lot about yourself. Right now, in my current role, I am a patrolman. So every day, four well four days a week, I go to muster. We hear from our sergeant that, you know, this is a guy we're looking for today. These are some of the objectives we need to cover. Here's an event that happened last night you guys need to be aware of. All right, ready, break. We go get some keys. We get in the patrol vehicles, and we hit the streets. So I don't have any special assignments right now. I don't have any unique trainings that are different from other officers, but I get in a black-and-white vehicle, and I, I patrol. I take calls for service. I do traffic stops proactively 
look for people with warrants. So I, I just do grunt work. And, and for now, I, I'd like it to stay that way. I enjoy it very much and get a lot of experience that way. So that's what I do right now. The incident that really stands out to me about my patrol career and honestly my entire life is is probably a shooting I got into on April 1st of 2019, about a year ago. I was on regular patrol. I was on the north side of our city, and we got sent this call that was a man had been in the shower at his RV park. They had this kind of communal shower in this building, and they all stayed in RVs. And he got out of his trailer, went to the shower, and he returned, and he found a man inside of his trailer. And this this guy knows he, he has a lot of guns in his trailer. And so he thinks, well, this man could get a hold of these guns. So he tries to tries to fight this man with a gun. So the owner of the trailer grabs a gun and points it at the guy in his trailer, says, get out. They end up in a hand-to-hand over this gun, and the, the bad guy ends up with a gun and kicks the man out of his own trailer. So he gets out, and that's when he calls us. So he's standing outside of his own trailer, and now there's a stranger with all his guns inside. And we arrive, and he's, sure enough, there's this man in a, in a robe standing outside with his hands up in surrender fashion. And he says, you know, there's a guy in there. I have no idea who this guy is. There's there's no reason for him to be here. I live alone. I don't know anybody. I, I travel for a living. And he's kind of shouting this because we're we're in this urgent, you know, we're getting out. We're positioning our cars. We're getting our heavy vests on. And so he's kind of shouting this, like, I don't know who this guy is. He's really in a panic. So we're trying to get this guy back. Hey, go back behind our cars. And we're prepared. This is a this is a classic, what we call a barricaded subject. Somebody's in there, not supposed to be, who has weapons that we know for sure. This man's like, well, I have so many guns in there, it's ridiculous. So our initial reaction is to set up a perimeter to, to contain this person, hopefully evacuate the area, and then to call SWAT because they're much more prepared for this kind of thing. So as we're kind of, I mean, we just got out of our cars. We're putting our vests on. And we hear the glass on the other side of this trailer break like he's trying to get out, like this man's trying to get out. So we, together, we move back, and my partner says, I see a gun. And this man had walked by the window of the RV with a gun in his hand, and my partner saw it just so quick, and he wasn't even able to shoot. It was just so fast. And so we know, well, yeah, he does have a gun in his hand. He's still holding it. So we take up positions again to hold this perimeter and hold this guy in there. And I see him walk by the window again, very, very quick. These are very small windows. It's an RV, very small window. And and he has in his, in his right hand, he has a big uh, 40 of Bud Light. And in his left hand, he has a single stack Glock. And I mean, I'm only, gosh, 15 yards or closer from this guy at this point. He walks by that quick. I didn't get a shot off. I was, it was left to right. So we start trying to call out to him vocally. Hey, this is a police department. And you know, the general call out stuff you see on TV or whatever, come out with your hands up, those things. And meanwhile, we're on the radio trying to get people there to set up a perimeter, evacuate the area. And this is all very, very quick. Is this, I, even as long as I tell this story, it's probably already happened. I see the man in the window opening some blinds in a different window uh, with empty hands. And so it kind of changes the scenario. So I say, hey, he doesn't have anything in his hands right now. He puts the blinds back down and he comes 
immediately back to the window where I saw him at first. And I'm behind a really, really large oak tree, way bigger than I am. So I have very, a lot of cover. It's it's super dark. It's nighttime. There's no lighting in this RV park. So I'm really hidden. And this guy comes out and he comes up to the window and he, he punches that gun out almost like he could see me, but his head was uh, covered up by the wall of the RV. And so I knew he couldn't see me. There's no way. And, but he pointed that gun right at me. I don't know what his thing was, but anyway, I, I fired back. I fired 12 rounds. I'm sorry, 11 rounds. And I got on the radio and I said, shots fired. And we start at this point, more officers have shown up. So we eventually are able to, to move to a more advantageous position. SWAT starts showing up. And so I'm, I'm backing up because I've been in a shooting and the, the typical protocol is to get that shooting officer off of the front line as soon as possible and get them into a debrief, one for intel so that people know what happens, what this person armed with, who they are, and then second to, to care for that officer, make sure they're healthy, they haven't been hit. A lot of times officers can be hit and not know. And so I'm supposed to be going back for debrief. So as I'm backing up off the front lines, I'm running into guys like SWAT officers and I'm saying, Hey, here's what's going on. And they're kind of blowing me off. Like, like, what do I know? And so I was just, you know, they're, they're SWAT guys. They know a lot more than I do. So I just kind of like, whatever. So I'm going back further back and the further back you go, the higher ranking they become. So I'm just talking to sergeants and I'm trying to tell them what's going on and give them Intel. And they don't, the, everyone's blowing me off big time. And I was, I was kind of confused because it's not general practice for us to really blow off somebody who's been in a big event, especially my sergeant at the time who cared greatly about me. I was talking to him and he was just kind of like, yeah, okay. It's like, what's going on? So I realized after I got all the way back to our command center where they have the truck and lieutenants and captains and everybody, you know, the media, public information officers is a big show over there. It's way, way far away from the shooting hike it back on foot all the way back to command center. And I talk to my Lieutenant who I'm supposed to report to for debrief. And I, I say, Hey, I'm here for debrief. And he's like, all right, Hey, uh, we need an officer up here to man this position. You you go up there and hold the, hold the entrance. Right, cool. So I run over there I'm doing that. And I, I kind of do what I need to do until I get relieved. I run back to my Lieutenant. I'm like, all right, I'm back for debrief. And he's like, okay, there's a, uh, this media person. He's kind of positioned wrongly maybe dangerous, go tell him to move. So I'm like, cool. So I run, do that. So I've run about a, a mile on, on foot with all my gear on and I'm just running back and forth doing whatever he says. And he says on the radio, I'm, I'm kind of like a quarter mile away from him at this point, he gets on the radio and he says, Hey, can you come back to the command post? I think I need to talk to you. Uh, sure. So I hike it back and I get back over there. And he said, I had no idea you were in a shooting. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, you said shots fired so calmly. No one knew that you had shot your gun. <laughs> uh, everyone thought that the, uh, the bad guy shot rounds off. They didn't know I was in a shooting. And so the general protocol for an officer who has shot his sidearm was no one was even thinking of doing it because I said it on the radio so, so calmly. They didn't even think it was me who shot. So... They immediately, everyone changes their tone and they're, they're calling me my, you know, we have attorneys that they, they contact and we're getting the structure set up for how we process an officer involved shooting. And it was hilarious because just the, the 
almost panic that washed over my chain of command because of what they had just done was hilarious. And I, I thought it was funny. I was fine. And I, I really was kind of in a good mood and you know, get that adrenaline rush and you kind of get happy. Like it's, it seems inappropriate when a shooting, but you get really positive. You just get really like, we can do anything We're we're unstoppable. And you just get this huge adrenaline rush. And I realized quickly everyone else is way more stressed out than I am right now. And, uh, so I, I start telling my account to the, the guys who give information to the media and to my chain of command. And, you know, of course they're taking pictures, people are taking pictures of me for crime scene purposes and documentation purposes. And they're taking my gun and counting the bullets and all this. So it just, it, it went from no big deal at all to this huge ordeal. And the guy actually ended up killing himself uh, in a certain way and it was it was basically a, a huge issue of, of drugs and alcohol for him he had gotten extremely high and intoxicated and uh, at a nearby business and he was we have a feeling he wasn't even in his right mind at all and so this shooting was kind of a result of that and so uh, it's been to grand jury it was justified and it's a closed case but that was it was one of the biggest moments of my career I did uh, struggle a little bit afterwards for about three months with some of the side effects that can happen psychologically with an event like that and when I brought that up to my sergeant they I had everyone in, in my chain of command, including my chief, sit me down in an office and say, what do you need? Like, what what do you need to cope with and deal with this event? And it was wonderful. They they gave me the time I needed. They gave me um, counseling sessions that were very helpful for free. I mean, there was just pulled out all the stops for me to make sure I was healthy and I was able to deal with that. But it was something that was uh, a very unexpected because at that point I had only been on patrol five months I was only on my own for five months at that point so I was very new to the whole thing and it was it was a blessing in disguise I learned a lot about myself and how I view other people as well so it's definitely the 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 highest and lowest point of my career I would say When I'm not at work, I am with my family or doing my own podcast. So I, I have a wife and a daughter who's eight, eight years old. I met my wife in my police academy, actually. Uh, wonderful story, and I, I love her to death, but I spend my time as much as I can with them. Uh, we have a new home, and we're, we are working hard to, to start our life. We're at the very beginning, so it, it's kind of a grinding start, but it's, it's a good one. And my daughter, she's all about Pokemon, so I do my fair share of playing Pokemon, both on the Nintendo and in real life. We walk around and play it, and I've got two awesome dogs we like to train and play with, so uh, it's usually family-oriented pastime. My podcast is called Yellow City Radio, and that comes from the city I live in, Amarillo. Amarillo is the Spanish word for yellow, so we often call ourselves the Yellow City. When I was on patrol, I would meet these really incredible people. I met this one man who was a 30-year LAPD patrol veteran, and he had he had been on patrol when Rodney King happened, and he went to a vice unit. He did all these incredible things, and I had just been required to meet this man and 
move about my day somehow. And it drove me crazy because I kept meeting people that were super cool, super interesting that I wanted to sit down with hours uh, for hours with. And my wife suggested because of all this frustration about that, that I start a podcast and that way I could invite whoever I wanted to come sit with me for, you know, an hour and talk about all the interesting things they knew and all the things I was interested in about them. So she was, she was wise to say that. So I looked into it, started a podcast, Yellow City Radio, and I basically just find people that I'm interested in and ask them questions that I want to know the answers to. The biggest piece of advice I think I would have for someone seeking career in law enforcement is kind of twofold. It's have a very good understanding of yourself psychologically, of what kind of person you are, what fills you up, what drains you, and what you need to be healthy, both, and that that's healthy physically, healthy emotionally, healthy spiritually. So self-awareness all is all of that and then humility so once you understand yourself have a very healthy humility about who you are because a lot of times i think people get very wrapped up in themselves and then get prideful over it and and that's okay for the every man because whenever they have pride it typically hopefully doesn't affect others that much now whether or not it's okay to be super prideful we could argue but when it comes to law enforcement, there is no room for self-pride other than being proud of good work. And if you don't know yourself and don't know where you're going to go wrong, then you're in a very dangerous position of using the power you've been given wrongly. And I think that's something that in today's culture, especially American culture, we have huge issues over a small percentage of officers who haven't had the self-awareness to know when they're wrong or when they should have stepped back. So... I think self-awareness and humility are probably the largest things that could help an officer succeed in any other way in law enforcement. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out GoLawEnforcement.com. Thanks for listening.